Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Hello, everybody. Welcome to 363. Is that the correct number? Yes. I believe it is. Yes. Welcome to Polycast episode 363. I am finally back, Canis Albinus, and we're joined with uh, our regular group of Makalua. Still not enough caffeine at this point in the day. Mega Bears fan. Oops, got that backwards. Yes, indeed. Mornings are quite difficult. And the me and team. Okay, that's the right one. Always flanking from all sides. Always. If you have film on your team, you have a flanking bonus. <laughs> Show you a flanking bonus. All right. Is it a flanking bonus that's capped at three? No, there's no cap. After all, the best strategy is surround and pound. Speaking of surround and pound, question mark? That's a great way to lead into an article you about... Forgot the audio oh, oh, no! You I did failed. it again! I fell! Mistakes were made. So, as I was saying before, I was so... You strictly... still skipped it! No! <laughs> There's two! <laughs> You're right. It says it right there. <laughs> okay. Now I should just now be quiet. Now can talk about it. Now I should just be quiet. <laughs> okay, so now that I've been interrupted show. twice by the show running properly, <laughs> so, yeah, Phil. Let's just God. talk about Gandhi <laughs> again. So it's a rock paper uh, shotgun article here about uh, how Gandhi is failed by video games or whatever, and this is also uh, now a closed thread on Symphonatics. It was not closed i don't think as of the time hmm. originally looked at this as a topic yeah we've That's been interesting. sitting on this one for uh for quite a few weeks now yeah so um the, the gist of it is that him being a leader in the game can't do him justice because of the type of figure he was in history which i, I feel is not really fair like <laughs> many of the leaders in the game aren't really consistent with how they were in history. Like, you have to take some license with that. That being said, despite all the flaws and the arguments throughout the uh, article, I do broadly agree that Gandhi should not be a leader of India uh, compared to other options that would be perfectly viable uh, for India uh, in the game that were actually leaders of India in different times in history. And he is one of the more overdone leaders as well when it comes to uh, the Civ franchise. So. In that way, I agree. One could argue. You guys have any that, thoughts on this? One could argue that India shouldn't be a sieve in and of itself because it's actually like five hundred sieves all put together in a weird mash. Hmm. I mean, we could have a Mughals and we could have a Marathi and we could have some other oh. stuff like that. But Mughals should be their own sieve, and yeah. I've I've been on record saying that plenty of times. And yeah, they, they would not be appropriate as an India replacement or something, because they were a nation that conquered India and then ruled it for a time. 
It would be. But that being said, even if we have Mughals, we've had something close to a unified India a few times in history. So I don't know that. Like you can't compare modern India to like <laughs> the times of Ashoka or something. Like they are, they are definitely different. Like they have different backstories and everything. Everything that led to their formation as a nation. It's the same territory, but calling Ashoka's India like, like the same as modern India is kind of like calling Ottomans and Byzantium or Eastern Rome or whatever the same thing. Like it's it's kind of silly. So yeah, I, I guess you're right. There there should be multiple Indias, but I, I would kind of hate to see like things like the Mysore Empire not represented in uh, using the the unified Indias only. Uh, maybe why they went this route, because when you have so many diverse ver- variations of culture, if you pick one, it it's you're not snubbing the others, but somebody will go on the forums and, hey, what about my people or my part of India or something like that? Well, I think yeah. that's fair, right? The Indian subcontinent is freaking huge and has a storied history. And we've had yeah. one sieve representing or, or, yeah, yeah. One sieve representing that region for how long now? Like 25 years. <laughs> yeah, and I would love to see, actually, I mean, cause, as I don't know as much about Indian history, I would like to see those some of those more individual states who had big impacts on the longer-term Indian history, air quote, I mean, you know, of the subcontinent. And to yeah. Civ's credit, I would like to point out that, you know, Civ 6 and I think also Civ 4 had multiple leaders for uh, India that did represent some of those uh, different periods and different cultural groups. So it, it yeah, is not the Sephora case that it has well. always been Gandhi and only Gandhi and nothing but Gandhi and screw you if you ask for someone other than Gandhi. Uh, <coughs> that is certainly uh, not the case. Well, Civ 5 did that, but other than that. Well, Civ 5 <laughs> had a single leader for, you know, every Civ, so... Uh, yeah, you know that that uh, India wasn't the only Civ in Civ Five that uh, had that problem. That's true. And one of the uh, one of the more interesting points that I think this article makes is uh, the idea that like the actual historic figure of Gandhi not only was never a leader in any you know political sense, but he's his entire life was like defined by his dissent against you know the established authority so like yeah he's that's a fair point too he's like the exact opposite of how he is portrayed in uh in the civilization games like the article argues that it would make more sense for him to be like a group of like rebels or you know something like that that you know spawn and then i guess sit on your resources and do hunger protests until you change your policies i'd be a a bit of a pr nightmare (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, like he he never had any political he was never I, as far as I know never in any elected or, you know, unelected like political <clears throat> leadership position. Uh, you know, it, it was always, you know, doing things like leading protest movements. So it would be analogous to having like Martin Luther King Jr., you know, being like the leader of the United States of America in <laughs> a, a game. Like eh, kind of kind of missing the point here, buddy. He just screams great person to me, personally. Like, oh, if you're yeah. on were to include him in a Civ game, that's what he would be. Yeah, uh, I, I've actually th- uh, thought in the past about the ideas of maybe having, like, a great humanitarian great person. Uh, and Yeah, well, you need something that's along the humanitarian or philosopher line to represent some of the people, because the slots we do have doesn't quite fit some of the more interesting historic figures that all of these different civs could have. Yeah, and someone like Gandhi or MLK would be like, you know, perfect fit for uh, for something like that. 
while true, like you could have him be a great person that gives culture. Like that's not unreasonable at all, <laughs> considering uh, how people remember him. What can use great philosophers to be like a culture bomb of a sort that maybe yeah. you have a city, yeah, that that particular city now becomes famous and cultural because that person came from there, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, a great person that does something like provides extra amenity or, you know, something like that as well would be, uh, you know, different ways of implementing something like that. Or, of course, you know, if the game actually like implemented, uh, you know, more demographic things where you actually had things like, you know, hunger and starvation and illiteracy and poverty in your cities uh and the game actually modeled those things then you know, you might have a great uh humanitarian unit that would maybe you know offset some of those things by providing extra housing and uh food and uh yeah amenity and does model those things it just doesn't do it like at the discrete level and that's some that's an area where the the article's just straight up not accurate like, yeah it, it doesn't come I mean, to the point is where you're, you're significant constraint and it has been for since Civ, well, even before Civ Four, but it was really crippling in Civ Four. But it's still bad now if you're way under on it. Yeah, housing it's housing descent. was a bad example that just kind of like you know came out as a uh, train of thought thing. But like the other things, like again, you don't like yes, you do need to feed your population. You do in Civ Six need to have housing for your cities to grow. But your your citizens aren't going to like outright revolt against your rule, you know, because they don't have enough food or they don't have enough housing. It's just a limiter on growth. Is kind they of in Civ Three. Yeah, you can go back to previous ins- installments in the Civ series, and and that would be different. You know, that would actually be something that might cause revolt and stuff like that. But I, I started the series on on Civ three and only played it a little bit before moving on to Civ four, so I don't remember a lot of the details of those mechanics. I did as well. I never managed to win a game of Civ. Civ four had revolts too. They didn't like change ownership of the city, but you could. Well, actually, you could if you had culture flipped. But even if you didn't get culture flipped, um, a city revolting would be, it would lose you turns from that city. Like, that city would do nothing while it was an anarchy. Make Gandhi the biggest screw you unit in the game, a great person that just goes and auto culture flips your city. Whoops, <laughs> <laughs> in the free cities, there you go. Yeah, we will we make him a unique rock band, lol. <laughs> he, he, he just uses a charge and he just grants independence to every city that's ever been conquered throughout the entire game. Oh, oh god. my gosh! Ah, take that. Freeze the city states. <laughs> oh my god, that would be so awful. <laughs> Maybe make it work so that it only works on freed ca- on ca- captured capitals. Oh, that was a total like joke troll thing. I, that was that was not at all serious. <laughs> no, I mean the the single city release. But I, I do. I, remember... I don't think that would be a very helpful effect. Sometimes it could be, but. In most cases, like if you just flip one city into independence like that, it's just going to get reconquered or even flipped right back. Yeah, that's that's all. Well, that would make it balanced. Uh, but uh, I also remember, like, this is kind of a, a similar, uh, you know, analogous example. But uh, if I remember correctly, the uh, I think it was the the Cree nation, like, actually, like, had some kind of like legal issue with uh, with Civ Six after. Uh, Poundmaker was uh, introduced into the game. So I guess even though they, like, approved it, like, they gave Fraxis permission to use the leader, like, I guess no one on the council or whatever had ever actually, like, played Civilization, and when they actually saw the game that he was in, like, I guess they got upset that, like, he was still able to do things like declare wars and 
uh, and backstab other players and stuff like that, just like every other leader in the game is is allowed to do. So it's kind of like a, a, a similar situation where they felt like that you know particular historic figure was not being uh, properly represented, uh, as you know, just fitting into the mechanics that are you know the way that Civ uh, leaders have always worked. As I remember it, that controversy was less about what Civ was and more about some random chief of the Cree came out and said, uh, blah, blah, I'm upset that you're using my historical leader in your game. And there was no real, like, it was like a, it was like a puff piece or something. Yeah, that's that's true. It it was not, I don't remember it. I don't remember it being a controversy. I remember it being an article, a single periodic once. Yeah, that, I think you're you're right. That's probably a more accurate way of of saying it. But if I remember, I, I did read the article, and if I remember correctly, it, that you know particular individual or small group of individuals was was upset with the fact that you know you could you basically could play the Cree and Poundmaker as a militaristic you know conquering Civ, and they just felt like that was completely like antithetical to who that person was historically. Uh, which, you know, is like the same kind of idea that's going on here with Gandhi, is the fact that you can play Gandhi the same way that you can play, uh, you know, any, you know, the same way that you can play Genghis Khan, you know, in civilization is completely, you know, antithetical to who he was as a, you know, person and historical figure. Well, if we want to go full historical relevant, relevant, uh revisionist we could argue that anybody in any given position could equally become anybody else but that's yeah, one of those things that it, it actually turns the argument into a pain in the butt and not worth listening to so yeah that's way outside of the scope of uh yeah. what we're trying to talk about here but that's true like if you fit anybody anybody into a game model their behavior has to at least somewhat reflect the circumstances of the game model as opposed to their circumstances in history which are necessarily de- different so we should expect at least some different behavior no matter what. And yeah. how different depends on how different the game is from history. Yeah, especially in a game that is as broad in scale uh, and scope as, you know, civilization. Like, uh, this, this article from Rock, Paper, Shotgun also has an example of uh, Gandhi in um, the 1980s game Nuclear War, right? Where he is, like, the fourth player with uh, Richard Nixon, Gorbachev, and Colonel Gaddafi, uh in a game that's like all about just, I guess, building nukes and missiles and airplanes and stuff like that. So, uh, like that's, <laughs> that's quite a, it's quite probably a an even worse question people, huh? <laughs> I like how Gorbachev is spelled with an F. <laughs> yeah. Gorbachev. Gorbachev. He's cooking you. Yeah. Perhaps literally. So his depiction in, in Civilization is probably also not the worst video game depiction of uh, Gandhi that's ever been released either. So. But, but does this mean that nuclear Gandhi actually existed before the Civ 1 bug? Possibly. I never played Nuclear War, so I have no idea how Gandhi... I mean, maybe, like, since they only had four leaders in that game, maybe Gandhi did play completely differently than the others and, you know, was peaceful and couldn't build nukes and stuff like that. I have no idea. It looks like they're using it as a foil for the others who are not uh, pacifists. (laughs) Right. Because it seems really weird that you'd have Gandhi opposed to these three dudes. <laughs> One of these things is not like the others. I mean, the, if if they took out Gaddafi and put in um, 
somebody like, you know, who's another country that has no interest in blowing up? Japan or Sweden. Or well, Sweden. Japan's not Switzerland, that far yeah. But if it was anybody else who was less active warlord, it would be a little bit more. Well, the, the second paragraph of this, this article from Rock, Paper, Shotgun suggests that in that game, Nuclear War, like Gandhi had a pacifism trait and it was treated like a handicap. So I'm assuming that other than that, like he's he played mechanically similarly to the other, you know, three or however the heck any more uh, leaders there were in the game. So I'm, I'm imagining something similar to Civilization, just where, like, yeah, as part of his, you know, leader ability or whatever, he's not allowed to declare war or something like that. Is I'm is just looking at this it. screenshot, and it's terrifying, because it has a 100 meg button. And that would... There's two of them. Yeah, that is not a, enough. Either warhead or missile. Like, that is a terrifying prospect. I think we, we can end on that. Planet Buster in real life. That would be, yeah. The biggest bomb they ever set off was a 50 megaton bomb. You could, like, feel it, uh, like, 400 miles away. Is that oh, powerful? Oh, Bomba? Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. Maybe you can prevent that with alliances? <laughs> I'm really glad that Brinksmanship is not thing. Yeah. Who's got the biggest nuclear, uh, you know what? Yeah, <laughs> no. Anyway, uh, alliances over on Symphonetics, a clue that had started to ask how people feel about alliances. You like them, you hate them, you're slightly nervous. Uh, had some random thoughts in there, but alliance, I mean, okay, before I start into that, I know that in multiplayer, the alliances work great because you can do that with somebody. You could be opposite ends of the continent you've got a mutual enemy in the middle and you two can have a military so if one of you gets declared on you can jump right in or if you're over in a corner and you're kind of you know you can either bolster your economic side or your science side because some of the forward ai does run away because it's all it takes is that you've, you to ignore one ai in a corner and the next thing you know oh dear they've what was it the other day to how much did philip have two thousand military strength yeah something like that <laughs> Just like what? Ah, but he did okay. In the random thoughts, alliances weirdly don't seem to have much to do with actual diplomacy. You know, they try to get, uh, they send in a few gifts or trade deals, an open border. You know, try not to settle close to them. Maybe get into a joint war, but sometimes they'll go for it, and sometimes they won't. And it just seems like it's in almost like it's. I guess you say it's almost like it's independent of whether you. It's like there's a threshold of relationship you have to have to even propose it. But it just is like whether the AI feels like it or not. I don't know how to, you know. I do want to point out that I, I think a clue without neglects to mention that uh, alliances are one of the principal sources of diplomatic favor in uh, Civ Six uh, Gathering Storm. Uh, and that is their probably biggest tie into diplomacy because that's the currency that you use to do things in the World Congress. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and if you were trying to go for a diplomatic victory as well, that would help. Yeah, so city-state suzerains and alliances are, like, the, the best ways to get uh, 
diplomatic favor points in the game, which is, you know, a direct path to the, quote, diplomatic victory. So even though the alliance, like, might not directly, you know, have much impact diplomatically other than, you know, basically giving you better trade deals, uh, it is, you know, closely tied into the diplomatic victory and World Congress. I do like that there's tangible reasons to run alliances, both if you're going for a victory or a diplomatic victory, and if you're not, uh, you still get yields that otherwise you would not get uh, by making yeah, alliances. Bank. And so does the person you're allying. So there's actual tangible in-game incentive to work with each other. Yeah, although what one thing that uh, does annoy me in Civ Six in particular is like you have to have uh, you have to be pretty far into the game and have certain policies before there's reciprocal benefits to trade routes because at the start of the game it only provides bonuses to the the player who's sending them, which means there's like absolutely no uh, you know reason to not send a trade route to a player who might potentially turn into an enemy because you're not giving them anything other than you know maybe a road. I mean, they can plunder your, your trade route, though. Yeah, that's true. But I think if a war is declared, the trade uh, route is canceled, and your trader unit automatically goes back to, like, the city that it came from. Like, I don't even think it's it's automatically destroyed. Uh, I think that that was the case in Civ Five, but I think in Civ Six, uh, it just ends the route, and your your trade unit goes back to the city. Yeah, I, I think you're right, actually. So e- even a surprise war, like, d- isn't a deterrent to sending a trade route to a potential enemy. And again, I've noticed, you know, the AI does it all the time where they send a trade route to you just to build a road, right? And you see the trader coming and then there's a carpet of units that follows it. And it's like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Well, I mean, you've got to build roads to your future cities after all. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like the only way to build roads in the game, which is kind of silly. But with that being the case, yeah, you probably should send a trader for that then. But right, for the right. most part, extended trade deals with somebody you're working with long-term makes sense. Yeah, I would definitely like to see those reciprocal trade benefits be in play like earlier in the game, if not at the very start. Because I, I think that was a, a really interesting you know, strategic element of Civ V, was deciding whether or not it, it benefited you, but is it worth giving the other player uh, you know, like free gold and other yields as well? Yeah, because yeah, even a tiny bit early on can make the difference between them staying at an even level or becoming that monster you're going to have to go kill later. Yeah, and that's just not a factor in, in Civ Six at all until you're like more than halfway through the game. And like I said, you've got like all kinds of policies and stuff like that that start granting those reciprocal benefits. And yeah, even I agree. then, even then the most, most of the reciprocal benefits come from the Alliance, which means you're already on good terms with that other Civ and you don't have to worry so much about them suddenly backstabbing and betraying you. Not that that doesn't happen, but it's less of a worry than you just sending it to your immediate neighbor at, like, turn 20 of the game, uh, even if that neighbor happens to be, like, Alexander or uh, Montezuma or someone like that, and, you know, you know eventually they're coming for you. Betrayal, I see. <laughs> Let's see what else did they like. They like that it's conceptually about how they're about defending against certain victory types. Like you don't do an elite, you, uh, you don't take a research alliance to win a space victory. You take it because another player and you aren't focusing on. You know, it's supplementing something. Really true. Like, I mean, first of all, as Mayor Bearson mentioned, the uh, y- you would be making alliances to pursue a diplomatic victory condition. So you're you're not just defending against victory conditions when making alliances. But even so, like as long as you're getting some benefit, even as a front runner, 
to win more quickly, it, it can make sense to use alliances to work towards your victory condition specifically, in addition to defending against them. Like, I, oh. I don't see the distinction here. Yeah, there's no reason at all to not just make a research alliance with the most illiterate sieve in the game, because the, the yields are, like, static. Like, the yields don't scale, like, based on how much research the other sieve is or is not uh, generating. Like, if it, if it were the case where, you know, the fact that I'm in the lead on science means that the sieve that I send, I give my research... Uh, alliance to is going to get even more science than i'm going to get from them like if that were the case then maybe yes this would be true but as far as i know that's not the case you just get like what is it like plus two uh science beakers or whatever per turn for you know either side of the uh alliance and then as the alliance levels up it's like one more for each level or something like that even if it were static if it weren't static if even if it scaled it would often still make sense because you're benefiting yourself and somebody else and that's relative to you everybody else on the board and so yeah and if you're uh, typically so far you want to make as many deals like that as you can yeah and if you're so far ahead like if you're in the uh you know atomic era and you're sending you know tr uh research alliance to someone who still like ha is working on renaissance techs i mean who cares if they're gonna get into the industrial era a few turns sooner like they're still not going to compete with you for the space race yeah, although they shouldn't be making that alliance with you then, probably because it's throwing. But from your perspective, it makes sense. Yeah, well, I don't think the AI really cares all that much which alliance you offer them. I think if if they like you, they'll take pretty much any alliance uh, you have. I know it doesn't, but it probably should, so yeah. long as victory conditions are a thing. Right, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I agree. Too nuanced for it, perhaps. So there's a second point from A Clue Without that we uh, we disagree uh, somewhat with it's uh, well okay and also the downside to lunch you can't murder your friend directly or if you do you can incur an emergency but that's diplomacy in the whole game though <laughs> like, I don't like that your ally can act against you by doing things like conquering your city states and you have no recourse other than to trigger an emergency in response to effectively them betraying you in that context. That is still annoying. Well, and one of the other nuances of this mechanic is I think you still, that other player, I think, is the only player that can propose the the backstab emergency. Can any player propose that, or is it only the player who was backstabbed? I don't see it happen often enough, so I'm not sure. But in any case, whoever proposes it needs the diplomatic favor to be able to propose it to begin with, and then also needs enough support from the other civs in the game for them to actually vote to approve it. So it's not even an automatic uh, betrayal emergency. No, I think, I think that's fair, though, because context should matter. No, even though I'm, the AI doesn't handle the nuance fair. of context I'm, very well. I'm just saying that kind of the way that this is written by a clue without, like it makes you, it makes it sound like you know backstabbing uh, an ally is going to result in an emergency. And I'm just pointing out that that's not even necessarily the case. If you're, uh, if everyone else has like no diplomatic favor, like at all, because you can see how much diplomatic favor everyone has uh, on the um, when you're in the World Congress screen, and also if you have the uh, the little info panel thing open in the top right that shows all the leaders. Uh, stats, uh, you can see how much diplomatic favor they have. And if you've got 300 diplomatic favor and everyone else has like 10, uh, you can do pretty much whatever you want. <laughs> you know, you're immune to emergencies targeting you at that point. Couldn't you just buy the diplomatic favor off the person you're betraying so they can't? There's that too. Although you do I, get to a point yeah. in the game where I, I, the AIs just become completely unwilling to sell diplomatic favor like at all. 
Um, yeah. So you can only true. do that in like the first half to two thirds of the game. And you'd have to actually care about the emergency in the first place, too. Which Yeah, that's the other thing, is is the other civs have to pose a military threat to you. And if you're out conquering everyone else, then that's unlikely to be the case. Yeah, you're more likely to have the, oh, how cute, you're going to try and kill me now. I mean, Free money? It's, it's still good that they have this mechanic that allows the other civs to gang up on a, you know, potentially uh, steamrolling uh, aggressor. Like, so that's definitely good. We want that in the game. Uh it just it it still doesn't quite have the teeth that it maybe you know should diplomatically or economically you know maybe we'd be better with some kind of economic sanction uh, option as opposed to like declare war against the strongest military in the game and hope that you win and if that strongest military in the game ends up winning that emergency they just get more military bonuses so you can cancel somebody's trade routes. Through one of the uh, World Congress options, but there's no option to trigger that at a non-World Congress time, which we kind of well, need. And you've to got be to fair, if everybody declares on you, you probably don't have foreign trade routes any longer. True, <laughs> although, well, maybe the city states. <laughs> city states, yeah, that's true. That's true. But anybody, you, like you, already have some equivalent of economic sanctions if everybody's at war with you. Because yeah, I mean that is that is true. <laughs> You're not going to be trading. With, your, your top value trades are probably not available any longer. Not that you probably care by that point, but it is something. I also think uh, there should be, even absent emergencies, there should be some similar dogpiling going on if somebody's near victory, but that's just me. And not even near victory, but even earlier in the game, if somebody is steamrolling, you know, like you have the, those civs like Alexander that will just conquer everyone uh you know, around them, and you, you know, you you're on the other continent, and you finally research your your caravels. You go over to the other continent, and you see that it's just solid gray. You know, all uh, yep. Macedonian cities, because nobody earlier in the game decided. You know, hey, maybe we you know should all band together and not let that happen. The, the problem too, though, is that the AI, even when it declares joint wars, like or whatever, does not actually coordinate its units. So. I I don't know that it would make much difference right now. No, and and they but might be also nice. and they might also declare joint wars and not even have the units to be able to fight that war. Like that's something the AI does a lot as well. Yeah. You know that they, they declare that joint war and then they suicide their two crossbowmen and one swordsman and up oh, now they just don't have an army. Or they do like we do with the AI sometimes you go along with the joint war just for the diplomatic favor towards that that's from that uh, ai to you but you're not really actually going to attack oh uh, yes the ck2 method of honoring alliances uh-huh. i think that's and this is, in general this is something that goes back into my an, a complaint i often make about overstacking defenses in the game because when you have somebody who's outnumbered, you have an asymmetric scenario where like unit positioning could really matter if you have to fight two or three nations. And if you don't allocate your resources properly, you just start losing cities because like, you can't put your army everywhere. If, if it's just the, the raw power of cities and walls and encampments stacked together like that, and Civ 6 means relatively little units can hold off way more. And or that, no units at all. Yeah, or yeah, or, or in some cases, yeah, they just cannot. 
you could break have, the city. It is perfectly viable in Civ Six to have your entire military be in another, you know, nation's borders and still fend off an attack in your homeland. Yeah, and to me that's somewhat ridiculous, and it really hurts uh, the benefit of some of these coalitions because now it's it very it's much more difficult for for a multi-angle attack or multiple civs fighting you to be a threat. Especially if they're not coordinating with each other on how to actually go about that, and they're just suiciding their units into your walls. Yeah. I mean, I, I see plenty of situations where, you know, you, you kill all of uh, an enemy's uh, melee units that are near your cities, and then their ranged and siege units just sit there and don't do anything until you bombard them to death. Like, they don't flee and retreat and regroup and come back. Uh, or take up defensive positions to prevent you from counterattacking. They just sit there until you kill all of their units because they can't take the city. And now compare this to earlier Civs, where this really was a threat, and it could happen sometimes oh, if yeah, you didn't like, plan like well. Civ, Civ 4. Like you could get attacked on a flank and lose cities, and that would set you back a lot. Well, in, in Civ 4, if you didn't have a, a unit in the city, like an enemy unit just literally walks in and takes the city, like no resistance at oh. all. And one of the things you had to worry about, particularly in the first half of the game, is barbarians could do that. Yeah. If you left your cities undefended, a barbarian camp could just spawn a few tiles from your borders and literally just, their axemen or whatever could just walk in. And now the barbarians own half your empire. Because you didn't leave a defensive force. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not get into the events. We didn't need events for that, but yeah. At least you like the, you um, the modern, coming. <laughs> I like the modern barb design more than I like Civ 4s, but I like the fact that Civ 4 forced you to actually invest to defend your cities and position your armies properly. That is something the newer Civs did not get right. And it's it's still a problem in Civ Six. Well, at the, least not the beyond. Static defenses have been buffed, which was the wrong direction. Defenses were already overstrong at vanilla release in Civ Six. Well, the, the walls are an investment. It's just it's an investment that you make once at the beginning of the game, and in many cases, ancient walls are like sufficient to fend off the AI. Oh yeah, especially if your cities. Yeah, are they're close they're together. more than sufficient in most cases. Yeah, especially if your cities are close together and you have encampments and like your 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 cities are making three bombardments on an enemy unit per turn. In addition to them shielding multiple range units, potentially. Yeah, but they're, they're definitely... Yeah, it's, I would like to see some kind of happy medium between Civ Four, where, you know, your cities are completely undefended, and Civ Six, where your cities defend themselves with no military presence at all. I guess, because you can't fight, fight back unless you have walls, it's a representation of, like, a standing militia type of a thing, even if it's not a proper military. Yeah, but isn't that also, like, what a barracks should do? I mean... Yeah, like, maybe you can't defend... Like, even if you build the city walls, it gives you the higher defense, but you can't shoot back without a barracks or something. I mean, I'm thinking of examples like, say, Total War. War in the city. Where, like, in the Total War games, like, your your cities do have a, a you know, re- militia retainer, but they're, like, incompetent. I mean, like, they're they're really weak, They're they have very low morale, they're easily broken... And you just they're just not very effective. So if the enemy comes at you with even a remotely sizable force and you don't have anything other than your city militia to defend that city, like you're going to lose the city. They are just going to completely overwhelm that militia. That's reasonable, though. And it's also true, like if 
they do need at least enough to overcome that militia. So that it's not like they can attack you with basically nothing. Right, which is so why I'm saying need there, there a should minimal be minimal investment medium. to take the city. Yeah, there, there should be happy medium, like I said. Like, building walls should allow your cities to fend off an invasion for a little while, but they shouldn't allow you to just yeah, single-handedly, yeah. like, defeat the, the enemy, you know, invasion army. Okay, I've yeah. literally done that with the city and encampment. Yeah, I think we all have at some point. And especially, oh, I, I mean, like, just camping even just one crossbowman in one of those cities is also just, like, a huge advantage because you can't damage the crossbowman inside. So yeah, it's impressive. Where, where, where the, just even if you do have a military force present, even just a tiny one, like, it's it's just so overwhelmingly strong. But yeah, we've talked about that many times before, and that's like yeah. the opposite yep. of the topic of alliances that we were supposed to be talking about. Next topic. <laughs> well, uh, the one other thing he did want in alliances is a mix, that it isn't always strictly gold, strictly science. You know, like maybe you could have some of both. How about more of one type of alliance? That How about a, a type of military alliance that doesn't have those bonuses, so you can have a defensive pact with more than one civ? Yeah, having or just having defensive facts. Yeah, yeah that would work. That wouldn't be bad. Being a, a separate thing, I think, <clears throat> would be a nice uh, some sort of some sort of pacty system where we could have different. We could have more, yeah, the multiple of the same type with somebody. It's like no, if you do economic with this guy, you're locked up from economic with this other guy. Well, why can't I trade with both of them? And I've said on many occasions that I, I actually miss the concept of the Pact of Secrecy that was in Vanilla Civ 5. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would like to be able to go to, you know, AIs or other players and, you know, come to an agreement with them that, hey, we are going to be actively working against this third Civ, you know, even if we're not going to go to war with them. But, like, we're going to agree to not trade with them and to, you know, do anything we can to oppose them, uh, you know, up to and including potential warfare in the future. But then again, the civs in, or the AIs in Civ Six, uh, in particular, are so fickle. They might agree to that one turn, and then next turn, you know, joint war with that civ against you. So, eh. <laughs> it's okay. He just hit him with a betrayal emergency. No problem. So yes. All right. Well, I guess we're moving on then. So. uh... Moving away from alliances, last time we talked about how incredibly uh, overpowered possibly Grand Columbia and their crap ton of military bonuses was, and now we have a topic on Civ Fanatics from Ted Hebert uh, saying, Lahore Nahang is even more OP than Grand Columbia. Uh, this person is saying that they still think Grand Columbia is OP, but that the Llanero and Haciendas are less impactful than I expected, which is interesting because I just saw a, a like unique unit tier list from somebody on Twitter. I think it might have been Potato McWhiskey, which put the uh, Llanero in like the top tier. So apparently there's some disagreement about whether or not that unit's actually good. Um, I mean, you can make a case just because Grand Columbia tends to have one by the time it's available. That unit's bonuses are incredible, to be fair. Yeah, like, by itself, the Yanero is, uh, you know, not good. But if there's, like, five of them, then, yeah, uh, <laughs> they're very good. Yeah, yeah. bundle of them with their special great general, and yes, they're very powerful. But on their own, eh? 
Well, even on their, well, uh, not a singular unit, but as a yeah. unit on its own, like if you gave that unit to another Civ and just had it working with a regular Great General, it would still be extremely powerful because of the way it, it can boost its own strength like that when near others. Like, <laughs> that's crazy as a bonus. It's it's very good. But anyway, this, this forum topic is about whether the Lahore or Nahang is even more... OP than uh, Grand Columbia, and uh, to be honest, I'm actually like struggling to remember what the heck Lahore and Nahang are in this game. Are those unique units? No, Lahore is a city state that got added, yeah. and Nahang okay. is their special unit. Somebody actually posted a picture at one point of a, a real live version of that guy. Really I might cool. not have actually seen either of those two new city states in the game yet, which is why I wasn't sure what the heck this was talking about. It's a city-state unit that you uh, gain, and it's like 200 gold or 200 faith each time you buy it, and it levels up its strength based on how many uh, encampment buildings you have. So oh, if you have if you unit. have an encampment and a barracks in the classical era, it's as strong as a legionary. Oh, it's a, so it's a city-state that actually gives you a unique unit. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have definitely not seen that uh, in the game yet. So I, I did not know that was there. That's uh, interesting. It, you know, he's saying he's got um, 60, uh, the 65 strength for him at turn 170 on standard speed. Is that really out of line with what you can get just building units by then? Uh, turn one, would you say 150? 170. 170? Uh, 65 what? strength? Hmm. I think we're talking probably at least late medieval, early renaissance. Turn 170 is mid -rena is uh, renaissance, yes. Yeah, and so since he's saying their cores, like, to me, this is not too far out of line with just, like, a musket. Yeah, muskets, like, what is it, like, 40, 50, something like that? Attack it's in the 50s, but a musket core would have more. Yeah, musket core would probably be at least 60. Yeah, so, like, that's right in line with this. Well, the other issue that this uh, user's bringing up is that apparently the cost does not scale up for each one. Uh, no. I don't think it should. Because, like, you don't get cost scaling up for regular units either. And I don't know that this is out of line, really. It's not really because, well, at least in my opinion, because not only do you have to have an encampment to get them strong, you also have to have um, some form of faith income to buy them and not be using that faith for other things like, you know, fundamentality stuff and Jesuit education stuff, or even just having a religious base in the first place since religion sucks. And if you have encampments, you, you can probably make pretty good units yourself because you're investing into the ability to produce them. Yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, these might be maybe a little bit better slash more efficient than muskets, but do they, what's their upgrade path? I, I, I haven't used them. They don't upgrade, but every time you build an encampment building, they increase in strength. By how much? Like, how many encampments would you need uh, to keep them competitive late game? No, not number of encampments, number of encampment building type. So okay. once you get to late eras, they don't grow anymore. 
And it's not oh. each building that you build. It's like the most. Oh, it's just if you like a barracks and then an armory and okay. So what do you get for each of those from them? I think it's like twenty strength. Twenty strength for encampment building. No, per per, per twenty strength for the uh for the barracks. Twenty strength for the armory and twenty strength for the academy. If I'm understanding it, it's based on the highest level of encampment building that you've built. So if you have a barracks yeah. anywhere in your empire, you get a one bonus. If you have an armory anywhere in your empire, you get the next level of bonus, etc. Right? Yeah, this Am just looks like correctly? it's. I think this so. just looks like it replaces the infantry line for you if you want it to. Uh, it's okay. Two hundred faith does seem pretty cheap, though. Uh, I think because I mean you can generate a lot of faith, especially compared to production. Yeah, but you're you're getting an infantry unit, right? Like you still need something else to break cities, and you can only show so many into one spot. True, but you would spend all your production building ranged and siege units and then spend all your faith on building these. And like the big difference is faith comes from your entire empire, whereas production that's spent towards unit can only be in the one city that's producing the unit. So I can see that potentially being an imbalancing factor where you can just spam so many of these. It, or it would be if you didn't have to invest heavily in producing faith at the expense of being able to produce other things. And on top of that, to you hold the city-state. Uh, loyalty as well so it's not like you're not paying things to access this unit yeah to me it sounds like the counter to this is that if you see this city state and you can't reliably suzerain it you destroy it you conquer it i I wouldn't care in especially in a single player game i would not give a crap if the ai had this yeah and then possibly even raise the city uh well the ai yeah but like another player is probably going to use it much more effectively yeah, I don't know if I'd care about another player. I'd have to think about that. And it looks like a lot of the the criticisms in the uh, the forums are actually talking about earlier in the game. Like, I see several people t- comparing them to uh, Roman legions. So, you know, classical medieval units where apparently this thing is just as strong as a legion, but is, like, considerably cheaper. But you're, you're still paying 200 faith even early game, right? And if we're talking, like, classical era, it is much less practical to get a lot of to many copies of 200 faith it's not like you're getting 80 faith a turn or something in the first like 20 turns yeah i don't think turns. i've seen it, i don't i don't think when i've concentrated on religion i don't think i've seen it go above 100 until much later in the game so this is not like you can buy one every turn or something like that this is like four or five turns of saving it or longer to buy one and that's comparable to trying to build uh more expensive units. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I think even on like deity level, if you want to f- kill an AI, you're probably better served just building an encampment and getting the swords out faster rather than trying to invest heavily in faith so you can faith by these units, but then you still need to get a great general or else these units won't even be significantly better than a sword with a great general. Yeah, it's hard for me to comment much on this because I've, like I said, yet to see this city-state in a game, so I have not played with these units or against these units, so I, I don't know how they pan out in practice. They were in the game that I played as the Maya. I found them right away. They were pretty average. They didn't really seem to, they didn't stick out to me as particularly good. But to uh, to Maki's point uh, about uh, how much faith you can generate per turn, I mean, I have played some religious games where, you know, by like the medieval era, I'm generating close to or, or as much as 100 uh, faith per turn. 
Uh, it just really depends on if you get some really good adjacency bonuses for your uh, holy sites and uh, how hard you, you push, you know, getting all the buildings and stuff uh, constructed. Oh, yeah. With some of the stuff right now in apocalypse mode, I've seen this in different uh, live plays of the game that people are doing ridiculous. What did somebody have the other day? Like a 10 adjacency place because the volcano had gone off multiple times. It was in this spot. And I, and if, especially if you start triggering off the volcanoes, you, you know, we've seen that as a sort of a exploit video where you can just make the most ridiculous adjacency cities i mean it was the uh it was using the great bath and then the soothsayers to just repeatedly trigger floods yes exactly yeah and they just can keep buying keep buying keep buying yeah in a game like that oh these guys are cheap but most of the time they're not i'm not even talking about that i'm talking about just a a regular game i've played games where i've gotten probably close to 100 per turn by like the the end of the medieval era uh, I had to conquer, you know, a couple civs that had their own holy sites and, you know, had like, you know, 10, 15 cities uh, with, you know, multiple holy sites with uh, shrines and temples and the uh, religious building all in them in order to get that much faith. But it's definitely doable. And it's also probably going to depend on like game speed and stuff like that. The more time you have to get to, you know, having that much, inf- that many cities and that much infrastructure, the easier it's going to be to reach that threshold. So I do not see like being able to build one of these things every, you know, two to four turns as being super unrealistic. Like that seems to me like that's probably doable for a civilization that focuses hard on uh, faith. But as Phil keeps pointing out you also have to focus hard on military because you got to have those encampments. But I guess only one encampment is sufficient because it's not a perk encampment thing. It's just based on the level of buildings that you have. Well, sure, but if you want, if you want good stuff, like you're gonna have a good, you would have to get enough to get a great general, and you probably want to be able to build other military unit types as well. Uh, so in practice, I'm not sure one encampment cuts it. But maybe it does if you have access to the city. And you're like the the time I could see this being useful is if you're not like going all in on military and you want some extra help from it, right? So now you can use this as a supplement to make a decent military. Yeah, I mean, I could probably also see this as being something that a religious civs, civ uses or a religious uh, strategy uses to pivot towards a more militaristic strategy. Because now you, you know, yeah. you, you leverage religious play for the first half of the game. And now suddenly you have access to this, you know, uh, special unit that you buy with faith that's comparable to other, you know, contemporary units. Uh, and then you just spam those, and then after that point, you know, once you've got that religious infrastructure built up, then you focus on building military stuff. So I, I could see this uh, panning out in that way, but I, I don't necessarily know that that's like overpowered because you can do the same thing with uh, the religious belief that lets you buy units with faith and buy any unit. Yeah, and that doesn't scale up in costs. Well. It does with tech, but not with... Yeah, uh, I think it goes up each era, but it's not like building the missionaries and apostles where every time you you faith buy one, the cost go, for them all goes up. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing the overpowered. I think it's a reasonable choice in some contexts, but not that much scarier than contemporary units by the time you can get enough faith to get a lot of them. Faith buying units in general is fun, although it requires you to Holy sites. Yeah, I had. So uh, I guess I guess useful useful in a in a apocalypse. 
Yeah, I had a, a Norway game recently where uh, I uh, focused uh, pretty hard on faith early and was faith buying, you know, lots of units in the the middle uh, game, and it was a that was a pretty darn good military game. Theocracy, baby. Yep, theocracy. I see theocracy used against me when some so shows up at the door with like a zillion units and I get look at their, oh, they switched to theocracy. Now you see, I should know by now when I see that to start building units because that means somebody's about to do an army. I, I just, at least in the games I've had, it seems to go hand in hand. Reminds me of a, of a famous old polycraft quote or polycast quote. Uh, you see your neighbor and they trans, they changed to vassalage, um, vassalage, theocracy and police state uh oh <laughs> yeah uh oh no, that was even less subtle <laughs> but yeah even having not played against this unit I, I'm still not sh- certain that I would even remotely say it's uh, stronger than just being Grand Columbia because uh, there's also a lot more counterplay to you know getting a special unit from a city state because other civs could conquer and raise that city state uh, or they send Amani there and you know flip it suzerain. So you know it, it, there's there's not much counterplay against Grand Columbia's bonuses, like other than just being able to kill them early in the game before they can use them. Whereas this, there's plenty of counterplay. I'll have to remember Amani in the night when we have our next show and we talk about that at one of the topics because I never use Amani and it's probably a bad thing. Um, Monty definitely has. Yeah, even I use a money. <laughs> yeah, I, it's bad. I know. Yeah, there's there's almost always like that one city state that some AI is just really aggressively like challenging for, and and you just end up having to use her if you want to keep that that city state. I remember the the poot the coup chains. Those were fun in Civ Five. Why does the civ? Ha- why does the city state have like five hundred influence with it? Oh, because two civs have been fighting over it for twenty-five to thirty to fifty turns, and they're just flipping it over and over. Again. No mine, no mine, no mine, mine. That seems like a good time for a spy. Oh yeah, I've seen plenty of games where there's like one or two city states that have like fifteen envoys in them from like a single civ, and then like the next civ has like fourteen or thirteen, and then every other city state in the game has like two envoys total. Actually, the best practice in that case is probably just to conquer the thing. Yeah, I think it depends on what it is. If it's a relatively mediocre bonus, just leave it alone and take all the other city states for yourself. Well, that's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, if there's an AI versus AI slap fight going on over a crap city, then sure, yeah, just ignore yeah, it. Just yeah, just let them have it. Yeah. I mean, they're, and they're dumping you know resources into it that they could be spending into other things. So you know, you're and they're probably not going to get that much of a bonus if they're constantly fighting over it because the thing's probably spending half the game not suzerain to anybody because they have the same number of envoys. What's the the city state that gives the city state that I see it happen to the most is the one that gives. Like twenty percent production bonus to the city projects. Is that Brussels? Uh, that sounds correct. It's I think that's Brussels. Yeah, because Brussels is either that or the um, the uh, wonders. But whichever one that is, uh, they seem to love that, and they just go over and over and over it. And I'm just like, okay, I'll just sweep up all these others. I'll take Nanmadal. I'll take um, all the other city states. I'll take Bratislava. Bratislava's still in there? 
I think so. I, think I it's haven't a, played it's a, a lot of games lately. Boost to cavalry units, say, right? Say what? It's a boost to cavalry units, right? I don't know. I just I haven't played a lot of Civ lately because I've been sick, but right. um, I just know that uh, most of the city states are just kind of ignored by the AIs, and then there's one or two that are just everybody loves them. Yep. So I just pick up all the ones nobody else wants. It would make sense if it's a wonder city, though, because the AI is also obsessed with wonders. Especially Quan. What's it? Quan Chi Huang. Is that yeah. his name? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if you're pronouncing it correctly, but yeah. The Probably Chinese not. Here. Mr. China. Mr. Ho Ho Ho, leave the wonders to me. Mr. I'm going to drink um, Mercury so I live forever and dies <laughs> at age 30. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work so well. Oh, well, we shouldn't make fun of people who lived back then. They didn't know. Hey, for all he knew, it could have given him superpowers. Maybe it did. I mean, that's the origin story for many a superhero. Drinking mercury? <laughs> well, no, not that, not that specifically. <laughs> but consuming something that, you know, would have actually killed them. I mean, that's like half yeah. of Marvel's characters is they got struck by a lethal dose of radiation and now they have superpowers. Not half of Marvel's characters, but half of their old characters. Because they made a whole lot. Well, yeah, that's true. Like, every Golden Age Marvel character, except for, like, Iron Man, was just radioactive. When in reality, they should have gotten bitten and died. Well, it's part of the the whole 1950s and 60s thing where radiation was the new hotness. Yeah. Nowadays, it's, like, nanotech and genetics. Which are closer to plausibility, although the, the powers granted to the superheroes still stretches that. Well, it's it's <laughs> superhero comics. They're all weird. Yeah. But at least we're getting closer to something that would actually let you do some, uh, abilities beyond human, normal human capability. Hey, there's actually, uh, you know, like military exosuits and stuff like that. Those are actually like a thing that exists now and are, I don't know about being used, but at least being, you know, like human and field tested. I'm relatively certain that they're just in reserve for when they're needed. Sort of like that helicopter that we took out Bin Laden with. Yeah. The silent helicopter. Yeah. Just one for when they're needed. I would imagine that that's going to be relatively long-term tech because that's not going to be cheap and it's not like an exosuit is going to hold up to military hardware that well still well the way it works with it with the u.s uh darpa stuff is basically if you've started hearing about it in the media we've had it for 10 to yeah they're on to something else now and besides the future of warfare is probably just going to be all autonomous weapons anyway you know why get your soldiers killed when you can just you know kill the enemy with a, a drone or a ai driven tank because they're cheaper and the next thing you know we decide to build ones that are human shaped and the next thing you know we have cylons and oops battlestar galactica we do or have to be careful about things once we have general AI, oh no, we need to be careful before we have general AI. <laughs> yeah, like right now, we need to watch how we program these things just in case. You yeah. don't know. Yeah, I think there's been several attempts to ban like fully autonomous weapons, and so far, I think they've all failed. 
Uh, yeah. Because of the United States and Russia basically saying, uh, yeah, no, we, we want to keep researching these things because no one else can build them yet and we're the only ones. So we have a decided tactical advantage. Interesting that there's no, very minimal, I mean, you have like drones replacing air balloons in Civ 6, but there's very minimal future tech stuff that involves automated uh, units or Other autonomous units. Maybe the giant death robot. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be piloted in Civ 6's lore or whatever the heck you want to call it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at the source material for that, it would have a human being in it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't Civ 6. I have no idea. Yeah, it, it's a Metal Gear, is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Metal Gear? Oh, boy. Hideo Kojima, Civilization seen... 6. Right, this was a podcast about Civ 6 at some point. <laughs> I, I don't know that I've seen a, a story with those giant robots where there's not a human piloting them. Maybe. There's got to be one out there somewhere uh, in media. What is it? Evangelion? I mean, there's the human piloted ones, but then there's the ones that come from space, which are, I don't even know what the hell that is. In uh, one okay. of the Gundam series, the Gundam Wing series, part of the storyline revolved around how the villain of the piece was very upset that they were developing non-human controlled robots because it turned war into a game. Okay, so it is. it has been done. And then there was that uh, classic episode of Star Trek where they simulate the entire war in a computer and then they just tell people to step into the disintegration chambers because the computer declared them a casualty. Oh my goodness. <laughs> like, couldn't we do this so we don't have to kill people? Well, the reason they did that was because they didn't want all of their infrastructure being wiped out and they didn't want to have to rebuild. <laughs> but they were okay with sending know, people... Like... Okay sacrificing your citizens. Yeah, they didn't want their entire civilization being bombed back into the Stone Age, but they were okay with just sending, you know, thousands or millions of people into uh, suicide booths in order to, uh, uh, you know, actually make the war, like, have actual consequences. You'd have to think that the uh, the people on the losing side could agree in advance that if they would lose, rather than being disintegrated, that they take concessions to the enemy. But, okay, whatever. Well, well, the fear was that if you didn't send your people into the disintegration chambers, then that would cause the other faction to actually start using real weapons and start blowing things up for real. So they didn't want Can to risk... Can we stop talking about this, please? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, true. We're, we're, we're a little in the weeds. Just a yeah, I was gonna say... <laughs> Good point. We were... Well, this has been episode 363 of Polycast. I'm Makalua, and uh, back again, Canis Albinus. Please, no more Star Trek. <laughs> the me and team. Always bringing you the best aspects of sci-fi. And Mega Bears fan. Stepping back from the Star Trek weeds. <laughs> well, we're all a bunch of nerds here anyway. I mean, I write science fiction on my own, but... Nothing that involves disintegration of people. Yet. Well, there is a war going on, but it's mostly explosions rather than disintegration. You have a pretty similar end effect if the explosion is powerful enough. I'm just saying. There was maybe a scene where there was an explosion in the orbit of a planet and an entire battle group got wiped out. <laughs> oh boy, alright. <laughs> we we don't disintegrate people here, we just separate all their atoms. <laughs> we 
stab right there at him with, with sheer force. <laughs> Much more humane. Copyright. Paul, uh, this note button. I haven't done this in a while, can you tell? <laughs> copyright civil, uh, copyright for access for Civilization 4, 5, and 6 uh, soundtrack. Copyright the polycast of polycast.net.